I, Rob Ford, have been elected to the office of mayor in the City of Toronto to solemnly promise and declare that. I will truly, faithfully, and impartially exercise this office to the best of my knowledge and ability. I will truly, faithfully, and impartially exercise this office to the best of my knowledge and ability. I have not received Rob Ford was sworn in as mayor of the City of Toronto on December 7th of 2010. If you had asked anybody one year before that date how likely this outcome was, just know that in all the pre-campaign polls that were conducted before anyone had officially entered the race, nobody even thought to include Rob's name as an option. A year later, though, it was over. It wasn't even that close. And in the days to come, there was no shortage of high-profile, conservative Rob Ford fans ready to rub this victory in the face of all those liberal elites who had laughed at them along the way. Chief amongst them, legendary Canadian hockey broadcaster, Donald S. Cherry. He's going to be the greatest mayor this city has ever, ever seen, as far as I'm concerned. And put that in your pipe, you left-wing kooks. Thank you very much. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Gravy Train. How did we end up here? Oh boy. You might recognize this part. It started with an underdog, with no real achievements beyond name recognition and his celebrity, deciding to enter a race against more experienced, seasoned politicians. Running against Ford, among others, were four notable contenders. Sarah Thompson... Rocco Rossi, Joe Pantaloni, and George Smitherman. Remember those names for later. Before the campaign began, Ford's team reportedly conducted an internal poll. It put him at 13%. The same poll had Smitherman leading with 44%. In that poll, Smitherman was even ahead of Rob Ford in his hometown in Etobicoke. But Rob Ford would claim at the time loudly and frequently in the months to come He didn't care about polls. It's hard to say at the beginning what Ford hoped to achieve with his campaign. But either way, there were three obstacles between him and the big chair. First, he didn't have a competent campaign or the infrastructure that goes with it. Second, he needed a clear, catchy message. And the third challenge, as you'll see soon, was Rob himself. But to begin with, as Rob signed up to run for mayor... His campaign lacked the stuff that every campaign has when it starts. They lacked experienced organizers. They lacked strategy professionals. They didn't have a network of donors. They didn't have fundraisers or a steady flow of cash. They needed to get serious. They've always struggled with the strategy side of the, of, uh, of the campaigning or government. This is Nick Kuvalis, the man who would end up with the lion's share of the credit for Rob's eventual strategy. Before he came on board... Rob had a base of really passionate supporters and simply not much else. So he was pretty clear on what he wanted to do. Uh, They just had no idea how to do it. They had no idea about fundraise, how to really fundraise, how to do voter identification, how to get out the vote, how to run, you know, a strategic communications plan. Um, They've always had a struggle. They're more about the tactics. This is how many... This is how many stakes we need to put up this many lawn signs. This is how many screws we need to put this many stakes up. 
with the lawn signs. This is how many washers we need. And, and this is how many guys with trucks we need. They're good at that stuff. Kuvalis is one of Canada's most notorious and most reviled political operatives. And he plays that part well. He leans into his war stories. And he will talk about anything, even though it always ends up either being credited to him or not his fault. Most of all, though, you get the sense that his core belief is that politics is a game to win. That's not exactly an uncommon trait among longtime campaign operatives, but it is one of the first things anyone mentions when you ask them about Nick's strategy. Nick's company, called Campaign Research, took on the Ford campaign as a client in 2010, and that led Nick Kuvalis onto the mayor's team and into a room with Rob Ford for the first time. He introduced himself by saying something like, something to the effect of, um, I'm not going to have any cancer on this campaign. We all kind of looked at him like, what was he talking about? And like, I guess the cancer he was talking about was a bunch of people on the payroll, but not working. Right. That was my, that was the first time I met him. Um, so I just shrugged my shoulders and, and said, okay, so he is uh, a bit rough as, as what I've had heard and what I had read about him up until that point. When Nick and his company started working for the Fords, they quickly realized they would have their work cut out for them. These guys were like people who just showed up and had crazy ideas and they wanted everything done their way right now. And, and so we had to put a campaign structure together and bring in some people who had some semblance of some experience in running, you know, campaigns from 2010 and not 1950 or 1960 or 70. And so we had that challenge too, finding the people because all of the, all of the seasoned campaign people, I mean, the Fords might've called them elites, quote unquote elites. They went to Rocco Rossi. They went to George Smitherman. It it presented a significant deficit for us on the campaign. It's fair to say that some of the best political operatives in Toronto were already working for other candidates, but part of the shortage went beyond that. Proven campaign workers know, or at least they think they know, what a real candidate looks like. And that wasn't Rob. He said dumb stuff. He didn't listen to advice. He wore ill-fitting suits, and he didn't look or talk like someone who could be the mayor of the country's largest city. A lot of people in downtown, well, a lot of places were going on about how, you know, Rob was a Neanderthal, Rob was uneducated, Rob was, you know, some people call him an ape. All these things they said about him. But, you know, at the end of the day, the the voters get the chance to decide. There were a lot of regular people, regular voters, who didn't see a Neanderthal when they looked at Rob. And what the Ford camp needed was a way to use those folks the ones who loved most of the stuff that political operatives hated about Rob. They needed someone who could make real numbers out of Rob's man-of-the-people myth, someone who could quantify and organize the teeming mass of really angry voters that Ford's team had taken to calling Ford Nation. They needed someone who knew campaigns and knew data. And they found a man named Mitch Wexler, we were attracting a whole bunch of of people who were new to politics, which is uh, which is exciting. It was uh, it was interesting. It was also challenging because uh, you know they 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 came to the campaign because of what they saw in Rob, and they really didn't have any idea of what politics was about or what it was supposed to be. What Mitch did on campaigns was simple. He organized databases 
and voters and contact lists. Every good campaign needs someone like him. He could tell you when the last time a campaign had checked in with a voter was, what that voter cared about, how solid they were. Would they take a lawn sign? Would they knock on doors? Would they tell their neighbors to vote for the candidate? If you want to understand what made Ford's victory possible, you have to understand the real value of all those visits and phone calls that Rob made to his constituents. Those calls and those visits were ultimately transactional. You called Rob, he called you back, or maybe he came to visit you, and he told you that you were right, or he solved your problem, or at least he promised to, and then he went away. But you remembered him, and he kept your number. Every single number. Here's Kuvalis. We're waiting for the, the city to give us the list of voters, but we don't know who's our voter and who's not, right? And the whole key is to identify the voters, make sure that you have the right phone number for their house, make sure that you have the right address. When you call them, the phone number and the address match the person you're talking to. So you can get someone to knock on their door and get them to vote on election day. And so Rob said, well, I have all the phone calls I've made. Like he, he had kept it all. And so I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, all the phone calls I've made in the last 10 years as a city councilor, I've kept all that. You've kept all that. Where is it? It's at the house. It's in boxes. So I want to see it. So I go over and I check it out. And he's literally box and box and box and banker's boxes full of every piece of paper. These boxes are a perfect piece of the Rob Ford myth. This would be an urban legend if it wasn't absolutely real. Everywhere Rob went, as we've established, he gave out his phone number to anybody and people would call him, and they would leave a voicemail, and then he would call them back. Everybody. Remember Doug Holliday, last episode, getting a late-night call from Rob, simply because the number had ended up on Rob's list? That happened to people every night, and these were the lists he was working through. He'd listen to his voicemails and write down all the numbers on a piece of paper with no names, just the phone numbers. And then he would dial through those phone numbers and call, Hi, it's Rob Ford returning your phone call. Hi, it's Rob Ford returning your phone call. So I had, oh, about 250,000 phone numbers. Many of them were duplicates, but it was like 170,000 unique phone numbers. And so I shipped that down to Windsor to my call center, and I had someone type those all into a spreadsheet. And, and so we called those numbers to see a few of them to see, and they were all Ford supporters. And so we took that whole list and we said, okay, we're going to get every single one of these phone numbers out to vote. A little bit of math. There were 813,984 votes cast in the 2010 election in Toronto. So as you might imagine, having the names and numbers of 170,000 potential voters, all of whom had a personal connection already with the candidate and most of them who had a positive memory of it, that was a really good place to start. And if you can handle all of those contacts properly, you can use this data to maximize every one of those people. And for a data guy like Mitch Wexler, those phone numbers were a goldmine. They did politics from, you know, their their instincts, from their gut. And they, it didn't really, I mean, it was a, it, it was a wonder that they kept all of the, the names and the phone numbers uh, because ultimately that's, you know, <laughs> a lot of politicians wouldn't do that. Um, and they did. So uh, I, I guess inadvertently they provided a good seed for, uh, for their campaign. So here's what Wexler did with those names and numbers. He had data entry workers put them into a telemarketing program. 
Then he and Kuvalas constructed a series of questions that would build a profile of each person. And then they automated those calls and they turned all those random names and numbers into a huge database of information about potential Ford voters. So whether you want to call it a professional operation or not, a veteran political operation or not, there was a campaign staff out there for the Ford team already. It was what they'd been calling Ford Nation. So they had the legs, but what they still didn't have was money, at least not in the form of donations, and definitely not compared to what the other candidates were raising. So Kuvalis knew that the team had to find some cash and fast. We need to raise money. And a lot of people wanted to support Ford and who were supporting Ford were sending in $5 and $10 and $15. Right. And George Smitherman was having fundraisers making $2,500 a person. You can probably guess the obvious solution here. Like he'd done in his first council run and like he'd done with all his out-of-pocket expenses at city council. Ford spent his own money. And so from the get-go, his campaign was, you know, I, I'm going to use the word corrupt. That voice belongs to Adam Chaliff. His campaign never would have existed if he didn't have a family company that was incredibly well capitalized such that it could loan him money to get his campaign that could not, could barely attract a donation from the public um, to allow it to get going in that, that infancy period. It never should have happened. It never should have gotten off the ground except for that he came from a wealthy family. Ironic, isn't it? Adam Chaliff would become a perpetual thorn in Rob Ford's side. He was no stranger to activism. He started when he was 12, protesting education cuts under the previous provincial government. From there, he was hooked. And by the time Rob Ford launched his campaign, Adam was deeply involved in politics and active in crusades to hold politicians accountable. If you were less charitable or on the other side of one of those crusades, you'd call him a shit disturber. But we're talking to Adam now because it was his work figuring out the Ford campaign's money that led to a report in the Globe and Mail that claimed the Ford Family Corporation, Doug Ford Holdings, had spent 70,000 bucks on mayoral campaign expenses like salaries or polling or fundraising overhead. A City of Toronto audit of the campaign later backed that finding up. It all came out after the election, and no, as you probably guessed, corporations aren't supposed to donate to campaigns at that level, especially not family corporations. That was one of a number of irregularities that would be found in that audit of the campaign by the city. But that wouldn't change the result. And during the campaign, that infusion of family cash provided the illusion of a well-stocked war chest and of a campaign that had support from serious money donors. It's so important that when you start, you look like you're you know, professional and ready to go and that you've got a big team behind you. Um, and from the get-go, these guys were, were cheating uh, by only being able to get together money that the family was able to front him, where most people actually had a, a real organic base of support that they were bringing money in from. Um, or they had arranged appropriate loans and, and those kinds of things. So Rob Ford cheated from the get-go. Funding his campaign with his family's money did more than just create the appearance of a rich campaign. It also freed Rob Ford up to weaponize the small donations he was getting. This is something that's become a standard play for any politician that isn't pulling in as much cash as their opponents. You know how it goes. Ford would highlight frequently 
the $5 and $10 contributions from real working-class Torontonians, not the downtown elites attending $300-a-plate dinners. These people, the campaign said, were the real voters, the regular people. Those folks giving hundreds of bucks to George Smitherman? They were trying to buy their way into power. Kuvalis hammered that point home every chance he got. You know, George Smitherman talk about how the city has thousands of moving pieces and it's such a complicated job. Well, the, the electorate doesn't think it's that complicated. And so he, they were fitting right into the way we were branding them, which was they were out-of-touch elites who wanted control of the purse strings. Between Kuvalis, Wexler, and their team, and the 170,000 strong in Ford Nation, that was a pretty good campaign staff. With a lot of family money and a little bit from small-dollar donors, that was a pretty decent war chest. The infrastructure was there. Check. And they were getting close to it when they talked about the elites downtown, but they still hadn't got over that second big challenge. They needed a catchy, concise slogan that summed up what Rob was about. Broadly, the message was down with the political elites at City Hall, up with the common folk like you. It was a time-tested message, but it wasn't the catchiest slogan. They needed something that captured all the rage Rob was capable of conveying when he talked about his colleagues, all the anger they were hearing from Ford Nation. And Rob tapped into that rage all the time. He did it with the media, he did it at campaign events, talking to voters, and on his YouTube channel, which he used to get around the gatekeepers of the mainstream media. The main strategy, the way he tapped into that anger, was to rail against the council he was part of. Smitherman and Pantaloni and all of them, in Rob's mind, every other person on city council, fit the same stereotype. They were freeloaders. They were making a living off the taxpayer. They didn't care if they wasted money. It wasn't their money. They were in it for the cushy jobs and the free stuff. They'd never do anything but spend your money and look down on you. And one day, all of that came together in four perfect words. Rob Ford focused on every councillor had a free TTC pass and every councillor and their family member had a free zoo pass and every councillor had all of these perks while they were making $100,000 a year. And that resonated with a lot of people. And he talked about waste. So the official campaign slogan, respect for taxpayers. The unofficial campaign slogan was stop the gravy train. And, uh, and we had a lot of fun with that. It's time to stop the gravy train. I will guarantee the gravy train, the waste of spending, will come to an end when Rob Ford's there. Stop that gravy train once and for all. The gravy train is over. The gravy train has come to an end. Put an end to this gravy train and the waste of spending. I'm the only person tough enough to go down to City Hall and put an end to the waste of spending and put an end to the gravy train. Where did Stop the Gravy Train come from? came from a focus group. So, like, it's not something we made up. Uh, we were in focus groups, and we were showing uh, focus group participants video of Rob Ford in council chambers. And we had, you know, 15 or 20 different clips of Rob Ford talking about, like, I get one of the famous ones is um, roads are built for cars and trucks, not for bikes. So we'd show that to people and see how they reacted. And so we showed a whole bunch of clips like that. And um, one of the clips we showed was, uh, he said in his, in his speech in the council chamber, this is a gravy train, we got to stop the gravy train. And uh, I was sitting behind the glass and I saw one of the respondents nodding their head. That man in particular, 
hadn't reacted positively to anything yet. So Kuvalis wanted to figure out what it was about that clip. I said, let's go back to that clip and let's show it again and let's see who nods and then let's start asking everyone how they feel about it. And it turned out everybody thought, because everyone's gravy train was something they had in their mind. So for one person, it was like literally go down there, kick the shit out of the unions. They're getting way too much. For another person, it was like, I like the unions, but the counselors are spending too much money on coffees and cookies and lunches and baseball game tickets. For someone else, the gravy train was these tax increases are killing us. And so the stop the gravy train meant something different to so many more people. And that's why it blew wide open to, well, he went up to 50 in the polls. A good slogan can cover for a lot of things in a political campaign, especially if you're just as good at sticking to it. And sticking to a simple phrase, one talking point, was one of Rob's greatest political gifts. Here's Mitch Wexler. I guess because of the simplicity of his character and of the way he approached things, uh, both in politics and generally, he was the perfect candidate for us in the sense that he repeated his message and he wouldn't deviate from his message. So he's not going to start talking about things that he's not comfortable about. He's, he's comfortable delivering that message about respect for taxpayers and stopping the gravy train at City Hall. So every day the media would, would be writing stories about whatever they wanted to and Rob's message was, was always the same. His team took Rob's reflex to keep things really simple, and they honed it. They turned him into a surprisingly good campaigner. Every day during the late spring and the summer months of the campaign, Rob, who was trying to lose weight, would go to a track near his house to walk circles, and Nick Kuvalis would go with him every day, hammering in the same talking points every single lap. And that's where I got to talk to him a bit more and and, you know, he's a great campaigner, right? When I said, Rob, here are all the questions they're going to ask you, and it doesn't matter. Here are the six answers you're going to give. You just got to figure out which answer goes with what question they're asking. And when you don't know, you always say this, right? When you don't get the question or you don't know what the answer is supposed to be from this sheet, you just go to this one right here. And that's what he did. He was really good at campaigning and following direction and, and, and he saw it as a, a challenge, and he was good at it. And that's why no one could get him off his message. And it resonated. It worked. It penetrated to the public. This was actually the perfect approach in the 2010 Merrill campaign. Because Rob was in a really crowded field, and all his opponents were career politicians, and they were all eager to get into the nitty-gritty of municipal policy and how they'd pay for what and what they'd do next. And while all those proposals got lost... Rob's message got through. So the Smitherman and the Sarah Tomp, crazy Sarah Thompson, and um, furious George Smitherman, and uh, eloquent Rocco Rossi, that's what we used to call them, uh, they wanted to get TV debates, lots of them. They figured if they could sit on TV with Rob Ford, they could get them and, and make them look like an oaf and like an ogre and Neanderthalish and just stupid and and then they figured that's the way to, to catch up to him. The nicknames were a nice touch. George Smitherman, furious George Smitherman, saw firsthand how powerful Rob's simple message could be. 
The thing about it is that if there's nine or 10 candidates on stage and there's an hour or an hour and a half for the debate, your two minutes, 90 seconds or 60 minutes, 60 seconds only comes around a few times. Yeah. So it really lends itself to someone who's narrowly scripted, but doesn't necessarily, isn't trying to be uh, too uh, splendiferous about their content. If you can nail your campaign slogan, and if it resonates with people, and you can hammer it home every chance you get, you can make up a lot of ground on the people who are trying to explain, for instance, transit plans or funding for affordable housing, or who are busy trying to defend themselves from the last time you called them a crook. And if those had been the only words coming out of Rob Ford's mouth, this election would have been a cakewalk. But there was one last challenge between Rob and the mayor's chair. They had the strategy and the money, and now they had the message. But they still had Rob, the candidate. And Rob had never met a media fire that he couldn't pour gasoline on. And so as it became clear that he was a real threat, as the spring turned to summer and he rose day by day in the polls, his opponents naturally started to dig into a decade of scandals that he'd left behind during his time at City Hall. His biggest competitor, George Smitherman, an openly gay man, took the first shot. Remember that idiotic statement from the last episode that Rob made about HIV? It's very preventable. If, if you're not doing needles and you're not gay, you won't get AIDS probably. Smitherman would face homophobia throughout the campaign, and he decided to go after Rob for that comment at a debate in May. I'm a gay person. That is a homophobic person. I'm sorry, some people might not like to say it, but I cannot separate that, which I believe to be a reality. And I had a lot of homophobic campaigning targeted at me by Nick Cavallis and Doug and the like, so I'm never going to leave that. So as much as I might try to offer a balanced perspective on Rob, like speaking about the things like authenticity, at the heart of it, this is not a person that I deeply admire. His question for Ford at the debate created one of the campaign's most memorable and angry exchanges. And your reason for voting no, you said on the floor of council, if you're not doing needles and you're not gay, you wouldn't get AIDS. That's the bottom line. City of Toronto is a place that has the motto that says diversity, our strength. It calls upon the mayor to be a mayor for all the people. And I'd like you, Mr. Ford, to explain to people how your character, and especially these comments, is justifiable now that you present yourself as someone who wishes to be mayor of the city of Toronto, one of the most diverse places to be found anywhere in the world. Mr. Ford. Ford's answer had nothing to do with the question. You're talking about Rob Ford's character. Let me tell you what Rob Ford's character is about. It's about integrity. It's about helping kids get off the street. Helping thousands of kids get out of days. Putting my own money where my mouth is. I don't talk the talk. I walk the walk. I have a Rob Ford football foundation. I'm caring. I help these kids get out of games. At Don Bosco, look at Don Bosco at Rexdale 10 years ago. People wouldn't go up there. Now I landed the largest development in Rexdale's history at Woodbine Live. I'm a businessman, Mr. Smithman. I know how to create jobs. I know how to meet a payroll. I'm going to stop playing the game of the Firstly, there's a lot of hooting and hollering, but one thing that I didn't notice in the hooting and hollering 
was to ask that man to answer the question. Ask that man to answer the question, why it's right for someone who wishes to be the mayor of Toronto to stand on the floor of council and to say that gay people and people who might be involved in the street don't warrant the city's protections. It's not about what you did for football. I built a skating program. Those things are admirable. Why didn't you answer the question about your fundamental character? You divide people up and you make people belittle and you did this on the floor of council on this issue and on others. After Smitherman's attack, the Toronto Star prepared to write a story about that comment and Rob's history of comments on council. And in doing so, the reporter reached out to the Ford team for comment. And he happened to mention that an HIV-positive man with fibromyalgia had reached out to the Star to say he was offended because Ford's campaign had not called him back. This upset Rob to hear because, as you know, he called everyone back. So he asked for the man's name and his contact information. But then, without telling anyone on his team, he went out with a reporter and a photographer from the Star to meet the man who was named Dieter Donat Henderson. And Rob apologized. And I tell this story first because the Star published a story about it, and second because it was not the last time that Dieter's name would come up in this campaign. Leave this with me and uh, call back tomorrow. We'll see if I can't... Uh... I, I, I know I won't be able to, but I have no idea. I'm I don't know any drug dealers at all. That clip is from a 52-minute long phone call between Rob and Dieter Donat Henderson, in which Dieter asks Rob to help him find some OxyContin. Rob offered to try to buy the painkiller off the street for Dieter. When the tape later became public, he claimed that it was because he felt that Dieter had made threats against his family. My wife was at home. It was obviously, you heard the tape. He sounded very disturbed, distressed, and I would say anything. Here's what that threat sounded like. I look out my window. I see Lake Ontario. I'm looking south. You know, I can actually see your house from here. When the Ford campaign got their hands on this recording, rather than try to bury it, they released it. They said that Rob was trying to help and that Dieter was taking advantage of his well-known desire to do that and that Dieter had turned to threats when it seemed like he wouldn't get what he wanted. And their strategy worked. The tape didn't really hurt Rob, or at least it didn't hurt as much as you might imagine that a mayoral candidate agreeing to buy street drugs for a citizen over the phone might hurt. And it was one big example of what Mitch Wexler says had by then become a very clear phenomenon. We got out in front of it and Rob explained the situation uh, that he was put in this, you know, untenuous uh, position. And people were, were sympathetic to that and his support grew. Uh, <laughs> inexplicably, everything that he did that was opposite to what you would expect is wanted from a politician, everything that he would do that you would expect is going to torpedo the campaign, all it did was was increase his support. And uh, I think people simply saw that, that, that this was a guy who was, you know, he was flawed like everybody else. 
once we passed the the big controversy in June, and then a couple of weeks later, there was the issue of Ford's past pot possession in Florida. The pot possession was a simple kind of scandal. The kind of scandal that used to bring down politicians all the time. Rob was in Florida on vacation. He was pulled over for driving erratically. He refused to provide a breath sample. Part of a joint was found in his pocket. He was charged with pot possession and with refusal to provide a sample. And none of that was discovered until 10 years later when he was running for mayor. And when it was discovered, he lied about it. In 1999, I was on vacation in Florida with my then fiance, now my wife Renata. We had been out celebrating Valentine's Day and I was driving back to our condo. That same evening, I was charged with failing to give a breast sample. Rob admitted to the other charge only after a report came out accusing him of lying about the possession of marijuana. He claimed he'd simply forgotten about the drug charge and had only remembered the breath sample. Police reports from the incident revealed that when Rob was asked to exit his vehicle, he said, go ahead, take me to jail. And then he threw money on the ground. While the marijuana charge was dismissed, I entered a guilty plea for failing to provide a breast sample, received a fine, and did some community service. By then, none of this mattered. If you were a voter back then that was considering Rob Ford, by the time this broke, you'd already heard worse. He'd told you the media was going to be out to get him. And now that there was a new scandal every week or two, it probably started to seem like they were. The scandals stopped impacting the polls, if they were ever going to. But since those scandals still had to be reported on, something else started to happen. And we knew that wasn't going to be an issue. We knew it was another thing at that point, another thing just to put, to put wind in his sails. This was one of the phenomenons that fascinated Mitch Wexler about working on Rob Ford's campaign. Because of all of the controversies happening during the campaign, and all of the whinging by people in the media, by opponents, people disrespecting his supporters, people saying he, he had no chance. As the campaign was, was gaining steam and as his support was, was increasing, um, there was still this denial in the media and among opponents that it could be possible for someone as uh, uh, someone with Rob's character, someone w- who just, he didn't look like a politician. It's a, how could people possibly vote for this guy? And it was feeding it. And it, it took up, all those controversies took up all of the oxygen in the campaign. It took up all of the media space. And it didn't allow any of the opponents to meaningfully build a campaign and get their message out. At this point, it's mid-August 2010. There are only a couple of months left in the race. Those boxes of phone numbers have become a network of volunteers. The money is coming from small donors and from the Fords and their company. The scandals have begun to seem repetitive. And after weeks and months of chipping away, Ford and Smitherman are basically tied in the polls. And around that time, 
there was a debate scheduled, and a boat was crossing the Pacific Ocean. There's more speculation tonight about the whereabouts and the arrival date of a so-called ghost ship making its way to Vancouver Island. The vessel, the MV Sunsea, is believed to be carrying migrants from Sri Lanka. At the debate, George Smitherman was there and he was ready to go toe-to-toe with Rob. Yeah, I remember that. I'm pretty sure that was a Sunday afternoon debate at the uh, one of CP24's debates up at uh, the Masonic Temple. And uh, that debate began in a, in a really strange way because the, the assistants for CP24 tried to remove whatever beverage Rob had brought with them to the event, and he had a complete meltdown. And then they tried to powder him, like dust him in a makeup TV mm-hmm. makeup way, and he was really not having, uh, really not having any of it. Eventually, Rob got in front of the camera, but nobody was expecting what happened next. Not even Nick Kuvalis. Out of the blue, they show this um, this ocean-going vessel. They say it's full of refugees from Sri Lanka, and it's coming to the west coast. And they ask mayoral candidates in downtown Toronto if Canada should accept these refugees on this boat that's going for Vancouver. Yeah. And, and Rob Ford says, no, we're full, he says, right? We're full. And everyone goes, aha, they got him, right? And then cut the commercial. And, and, you know, after the commercial, Rob got back on the TV and he was being peppered by Canada being a racist, xenophobe against immigrants, all this stuff. And he said, no, no, no. Our hospitals are full. Our roads are full. The traffic is bad. Our schools are full. Like, we got to take care of the people here. Now, fast forward to Donald Trump and others around the world. Canada first, USA first, France first. Like that is the narrative for populists. And Rob Ford did that around the 12th or 13th of August in 2010. Ten days after that debate, Nick's internal poll showed that it had gone from a tied race to 50-25 in Rob's favor. It wasn't a tested message. Nobody could have prepared for it. It was Rob reacting. They were trying to snarl him. So it did fit our frame of wind in our sails. They were going to try and do something to show what a low-brow, you know, low-thinking, you know, low-IQ, xenophobe race. Like, they were trying to pit him there. And the public said, enough. Just enough. And so things broke wide open. And we didn't actually realize it in August that that was what it was. But uh, after we did some more polling and stuff, we realized people had just had it. They saw something in themselves with Rob Ford, right? And that was it. People saw themselves in Rob. And that meant the scandals didn't matter. When Ford said something on live TV that a lot of people thought should crush him, it did the opposite. They were invested in him. It didn't take long for George Smitherman to realize that he was done. I knew quite early on, uh, had a pretty good sense that my uh, goose was cooked. So it, was, uh, it wasn't long that he was on the scene that I saw what uh, had arisen and understood the difficulties that I was going to have managing that from a political standpoint. The vote was held on October 25th, 2010. And with 47.11% of the vote, Rob Ford was the victor. Smitherman had come in second, 
and Joe Pantaloni came in third. It's perhaps worth noting that Pantaloni and Smitherman's combined votes, or the anti-Ford votes, were roughly 2,000 votes more than Rob received. Not that it changed a thing. The people of Toronto have spoken, and tonight, my friends, they have sent a very clear message. I've just spoken with Mayor-elect Rob Ford and offered to him my most sincere congratulations and gratitude for a campaign very hard fought. Like me, I'm sure that the city that he sought to change has in fact helped to change him, to Rob and to his entire campaign team, I offer congratulations. Difference, differences aside, as a Torontonian who loves my city, I hope for your success, Rob. No, no, no. Toronto is too important. There are no boos tonight. We love our city. I would say almost 10 years later, I feel uh, a little, uh, from a political standpoint, a little bit validated insofar as people understand that not that notwithstanding whatever uh, uh, point of view you might have about Rob Ford's intellect or his capacities or what have you, he was a phenomenon. And phenomenons are difficult to campaign against. I'm going to be a little bit explicit here with some of the facts of the Rob Ford campaign. Because as we looked back a decade with people who were there at the time, the blueprint that the Ford campaign laid out began to look incredibly prescient, so much so that everyone commented on the narrative. You can judge for yourself, but I'm just going to lay out how it happened. Ford was treated like a joke at first, even though he was second in the polls almost as soon as he got in the race even though he kept climbing, week after week, month after month. Ford had name recognition from his time at City Hall, he had celebrity from his public profile, and he had family money to spend. But he had no real achievements in politics that he could run on. What he had instead was a great forward slogan. Rob Ford said nasty and offensive things. He said them in the years before he was campaigning, and he said them during the campaign itself. He said things that should have destroyed his chances. They absolutely did not. The media covered all those things, though. They covered him relentlessly. And they gave him far more press in doing so than they gave to anyone running against him. A lot of people assessing Ford's chances and opinion pieces and analysis on television over the summer assumed that no Torontonian who valued the city's diversity and character, could support him. He ended up with almost 50% of the vote. He pitched himself as a man of the people, even though he came from a rich family. He condemned downtown liberal elites, but he used his family cash to finance much of his campaign at the same time as he was bragging about small donations. He broke the established rules, or at least what people thought were the established rules about municipal campaigning. And it didn't hurt him. It didn't matter. And he won. And this will be familiar too. Even as he was celebrating his victory, people who had lost were trying to talk themselves into a Rob Ford who would be different as mayor than he'd been as a candidate. 
It is incumbent upon the new mayor to rise above division and seek to unite Toronto to be a mayor for all Torontonians. It will, it will be written that I lost an election that was mine to win, and I accept that. Of course, I've looked back. I've had a lot of time to consider it, haven't I? And it's a, a somewhat traumatizing event to lose an election like that where you've had... Uh, You've put uh, so much at uh, stake financially and in terms of your family and all of that. And you, of course, you reflect on it. My key reflection is if I'd have brought it more and more and more and been divisive and confronted him, uh, would the result have been different? I'm not convinced I would have beat him. I am convinced that it would have been more divisive and I could have got angrier and all of that. But I'm really not sure even with that best foot forward, which is the only strategy, you know, which is a strategy that I see that I, I certainly could have deployed. I'm not really sure in that election cycle uh, with the Tea Party phenomenon in the United States as a, quite an influence of our times. I'm not sure I could have beat him even with, uh, you know, even with that different approach. While George Smitherman was giving that concession speech at the government nightclub, Rob Ford was celebrating victory at the Toronto Congress Centre it was just before 10 p.m. when he threw on a Hawaiian lei and walked on stage with his mother on his right side and his wife Renata on his left. If you voted for me, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You voted for change at City Hall. You trusted me and I will live up to your expectations, guaranteed. Four years, four years from tonight, you'll look back and say, Rob Ford did exactly what he said he was going to do. Next time on The Gravy Train, Rob takes office and the whispers start. We were aware of the rumors floating around of uh, he and his brother's activities related to the retail sale of drugs uh, in his Etobicoke community. Through a police source, that was the first time that they said, look, I don't know exactly what's going on with this Mary Walsh business, but there are a lot of 911 calls made from that house. While he was sober, he was fine. I think that, you know, he fell off sometime in the new year. The Gravy Train is hosted and written by me, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. It is produced and edited by Annalisa Nielsen and Stephanie Phillips. Ryan Clark is also one of our producers, and he's our sound engineer. Rob Purchase and Daniela Giantomasso handled archival sourcing for all those clips you hear. Additional clips for this episode are courtesy of A News, Vancouver Island, and from Rob Ford himself, courtesy of his YouTube channel. Editorial guidance came from Claire Broussard and Amal Delich, and it wouldn't sound this good without them. We also had production assistance from Lucas Ionetta and Matthew Morrow. You can find all of the Frequency Podcasts, including the other one I host called The Big Story, at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you like to listen to them. <laughs>